Hello, everybody. Welcome to Macro Money. This is Ilya Spivak, head of global macro at Tasty Live. We are in the fun part of the week here, folks. We are within striking distance of the big splash U.S. economic data that we've been waiting for all week. And the first part of this story is going to be the U.S. GDP report. This will be a look at where economic growth is in the U.S. in the fourth quarter. And of course, the question we are asking ourselves is, not surprisingly, will this number actually generate a response from financial markets? Will we get volatility? Uh, and uh, to what extent will this influence the uh, story that we've been watching for the past several months, where clearly there's been a recovery in market sentiment last year, of course, mostly spent with stocks going down, with uh, the dollar going up as uh, both something lifted by haven demand as stocks uh, decline and capital goes to cash, as well as uh, by rising Fed rates and the appeal that the dollar generates there. So we ostensibly over the past several months have seen a bit of a reversal in that dynamic and uh, that that positivity seems to have uh, carried a bit into um, the start of this year. This GDP number, of course, uh, a critical input in that narrative. So what we are going to do here first, um, what you see on the screen, uh, there is the number we're going to focus on. This is the annualized seasonally adjusted GDP growth rate for the fourth quarter. Expectation is that it will come down from 3.2 in the third to 2.6 this go round. And uh, finishing out the week on Friday will be the PCE inflation gauge, which is uh, the last four lines you, you see on that table there. That's uh, something we'll cover on the show in exhaustive detail tomorrow. So 2.6%, hold that number uh, close by. Uh, we're going to reference it as a sense of where we are in the business cycle and um, where we might end up. So the first question we want to ask ourselves is, is this a reasonable number? Is this a number that makes sense? So the first thing that we are going to do then is we are going to look at some near-term growth catalysts, something more timely, more uh, actionable than GDP numbers themselves. And these are purchasing manager index uh, surveys. We have two of them here uh, in the orange, the one from S&P Global, in the green, the one from the uh, US-based Institute of Supply Management. And what we've done is we've taken the three-month average and, 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 and looked at that. That's because this data is data that's uh, a monthly uh, time series. And what we're looking at here uh, is going to be averaging three months from December backwards. Uh, the idea being that what we're looking at here is a story about 
essentially benchmarking GDP. So looking at something that's similar to what is the GDP uh, reference window, which of course for the fourth quarter would be the last three months of last year. So looking at the three-month average for both of these measures, um, you can see they're, uh, they're um, telling us a slightly different story as far as growth versus contraction. Both of them are diffusion indexes that work on a basis where 50 is the center line. That's neither growth nor expansion. Both of them are composite measures, uh, which means they factor into them both service sector and manufacturing sector activity growth. And what we're looking at then is uh, essentially where activity growth on these different measures was in the three months to end last year. On the ISM gauge, it looks like we were looking at positive growth, but uh, the lowest in a while. On uh, the S&P Global gauge, it looks like we actually saw contraction. Looking at the reference point to where we are as relative to recent history, it looks like both of these, um, these measures suggest we're right around let's call it July of last year. Now, of course, that's, our, or, or of 2020, rather, I should say. July of 2020, you can see, is uh, that brisk run-up in uh, growth numbers as we got the aggressive stimulus uh, to counteract the breakout of COVID right around mid-year. So in March, we started to have um, the Fed give us unlimited QE. Then a lot of the fiscal side started to come in um, with support and drive up demand. So it's looking like we're right around there. Now, since we're looking at trying to benchmark GDP, this gives us a sort of reference point to where we're somewhere in the middle of the second quarter number and the third quarter number in GDP terms. Now, where this is a bit tricky is those quarters are the heart of the COVID volatility in growth. So you can see in one quarter, we had just the most incredible 30% decline in the annualized um, rate terms, only to then the subsequent quarter have a 35% surge. That's, of course, the initial COVID lockdown and then the policy response. So what we're going to do, since we're supposed to be somewhere in the middle there in reference terms, is we're going to average those numbers together and say, okay, we're somewhere in the middle there. We're somewhere in that range. and. Shock of shocks, we get about 2.7%, which is pretty much spot on with expectations of 2.6% on this release tomorrow. So in very crude terms, it looks like these expectations are give or take right-sized. It looks like we're going to get a number that is about in line with expectations. And so, naturally, the next question that comes to mind is, okay, well, if we're going to get a number that's in line, where's the object of speculation here? If the number does not meaningfully deviate from forecasts, then it doesn't really factor into a corporate's bottom line. It doesn't really factor into the Fed's calculus. It is 
as far as the markets are concerned, just another piece of evidence suggesting that the baseline view markets have on um, the business cycle is generally correct. So how does one find what this might do and what the implications of this might be going forward? Well, the first step, I think, will be to look at, well, where have we been since the fourth quarter? If speculation about the fourth quarter gets put to rest with this release, the next question arguably is, what has growth done for us lately? What has now happened since this release? And what we see, and these are no longer three-month averages, these are the same PMIs, but now they are uh, being shown as a monthly series, you can see they are trending substantially lower. And in fact, while on the three-month range, the uh, ISM version was still in growth mode, when we look at what happened in January, we're looking at aggressive weakness. We're looking at aggressive weakness in the S&P global side. We're looking at aggressive weakness in the ISM side. All of it suggesting that we are now approaching levels that were prevailing around May of 2020. So into the turn, but certainly not uh, not the uh, the optimistic vision that we would have of the fourth uh, the fourth quarter. It should uh, I should point out that of course these numbers from May are lower, but then the numbers from June are uh, are are substantially higher. So these are the lowest numbers since May. It is, of course, also the case that whereas in May, these were numbers off a low in the April uh, data series, we are still trending down. The obvious question then is, okay, well, what do the markets think about this? We seem to be uh, still on this weakening trajectory for economic activity in the U.S. Uh, here toward the end of January. Do financial markets care? And uh, needless to say, the first takeaway we have is they apparently do not. Because when we look at what's going on here, uh, we see that financial markets have been marching higher since basically September, having bottomed in August. Not surprisingly, the, the next question is, okay, well, what gives? How is it that the underlying for growth, for earnings, is heading one way, and stocks, and here I'm looking at the ACWI ETF, that's the, uh, the tracker for the MSCI uh, global stock index. So this is not just the US, this is global shares as a whole. That ETF, with that index underlying it, has been going up for some months now, even as growth has deteriorated. So why is that? How is that? What is the, the driver behind this? Resilience, And you can see that very curiously, going from essentially the beginning of last year, stocks are going down as expectations for where rates will be, Fed rate uh, moves, what they will do 
in the back half of this year, what you see in that red line there is the implied rate spread for Fed funds futures from July through December of this year. So essentially the back half of this year. And what we're seeing there is as growth has fallen, Let's go back here. We can see growth falling uh, since the beginning of uh, of last year, and you can see stock markets, uh, the the yellow bars, they're falling with growth. The change occurs in September of this year. When you look at Fed policy expectations for the back half of, of this year, they too are falling with stocks, and then in in in, in August there's a pivot. In September there's a change. As you get deeper rate cut expectations, and you can see now, we are looking at already one rate cut of at least 25 basis points fully priced in for the second half of this year. Here, those rate cuts are helping to support stock markets. And so it would seem that market optimism is not so much based on fundamentals, not, not so much based on what the economy is actually doing, and much more so based on the sense that over the past year, everybody's focus has been laser-tuned to the next Fed move, and then the Fed move after that, and then the Fed move after that. Everybody has been absolutely, singularly, narrowly focused on what the Fed will do, where the rate hike cycle will stop, what the cadence of the, 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 the rate hikes will be, 50 basis points, 75 basis points, etc. We are ostensibly at the end of that narrative. In fact, if you look at the Fed yield curve, since the last policy announcement, uh, that announcement was on the 14th. I take the historical reference curve here from the 15th to kind of give it a day to settle and digest. And what you see there is very little movement. We have not really seen baseline policy expectations over the whole uh, the whole curve moving with any kind of significant vigor. You can see a little bit more of a uh, steep uh, easing after the peak six months out, a little bit more steepening in the run-up to where maybe we hit the peak in three months, not six. But generally speaking, very little change. And so one might surmise that this move, which you can see here began in August, is all but priced in. That essentially the shift that we have seen in rates here is just about done. Or at least that this may stop being this sort of counterintuitive situation where going into the downturn, easing policy expectations were consistent with slower growth and were consistent with weaker shares. And since August, shares have started to actually celebrate this part of the equation. This, of course, makes this GDP report a pivotal moment. 
And indeed, it may not be a pivotal moment immediately. But what it sets up could be a significant about face in markets. Because what you then end up seeing is a situation where you have U.S. growth in the fourth quarter essentially in line with expectations. That's what um, it seems to be uh, likely uh, to uh, be the outcome. If you see relative stasis in Fed policy, you nevertheless see continued deterioration on the growth side. Moreover, if you look at economic surprise indices, um, there's two of them here, one from uh, Bloomberg in the green, one from Citigroup in the orange, they've been deteriorating, suggesting that U.S. economic data has been doing worse relative to baseline forecasts. So whatever optimism is uh, baked into this levitation in stocks that we see here uh, in the past four, five months, that optimism is being shown to have disconnect with actual economic data outcomes. That optimism ostensibly giving us economic data expectations and then realized results are being undershot as relative to those expectations, which is what we're seeing here increasingly over recent months. Both the green and the orange line, you can see there, are trending lower. And um, I've marked out where the last Fed meeting was. Those moves lower have only accelerated since. So it may very well be that where this GDP release becomes market moving is not so much in its substance, but in its passing as a placeholder for the macro narrative, as a waypoint in the direction that we are headed. That direction is a world where the Fed, will they do this, will they do that next month type of narrative, has essentially aged out of speculative relevance. It is no longer an object of speculation that the Fed will or won't do X or Y thing, we can see by the yield curve's relative inaction since the last meeting, we're largely there already. To the extent that a GDP number that's in line with expectations sets us up then for a staid status quo announcement when the Fed convenes next week, and we uh, ostensibly hear something in the realm of, well, okay, you all have basically read our forecasts as we've intended them. We are generally in agreement with markets as to where things are going. Good, on we go. Non-event, as far as uh, policy surprise factor, as supported by a GDP number without policy surprise factor in its own right. The question becomes, well, what is the object of speculation next? And that may very well be this downdraft in economic growth and the continuing weakness that we see in the PMIs here, reconnecting for us the relationship between stocks and the fundamentals, but in a bearish direction, 
whereby rather than uh, this recent upswell, uh, courtesy of the uh, shift in Fed policy expectations over the more immediate second half of this year has given us a degree of levitation. The next step, now that that's understood, and now that the curve is largely anchored, would be, okay, well, maybe they need to ease harder, but maybe that's not good news. Maybe what comes next needs to be a more rapid pivot, but that's not because inflation has been contained, per se. It is because the cost paid to contain it has been dire and will remain dire as these rate hikes that have already occurred are digested with a lag of six to nine months into the broader economy. With that in mind, of course, then the question becomes, okay, well, if stocks decline, what does that mean elsewhere in markets? And the immediate thing that comes to mind is, of course, one of our favorite charts here on macro money, the U.S. dollar smile. And this uh, uses DX futures for uh, the data because, of course, uh, there's a ton of historical data here. But the UUP uh, ETF uh, as a tradable instrument uh, is one way you could gain exposure here. Uh, it is Deutsche Bank's um, index of the U.S. dollar against its major um, counterparts. That's the underlying, uh, and uh, UUP is the Invesco ETF on that underlying. So what you're seeing here is a situation where when U.S. economic growth substantially underperforms, the global average that's on the left-hand side of the chart here, the U.S. dollar actually does well. And that's because what you see is a shift away from risk toward cash. The favored form of cash is, of course, the most liquid form because that's the one that's able to absorb more and most capital outflow from elsewhere without moving too wildly, moving uh, such that losses would be imposed. And also will not move so crazy when capital comes back out and goes back into riskier ventures when the coast clears. So one immediate takeaway is if you get a risk-off situation and stock markets start to come off as a whole, one pocket of strength could indeed be the dollar and in ETF terms, UUP. Uh, the other interesting question, of course, is gold. Gold has levitated significantly in this environment where Fed policy expectations have become uh, a little bit less restrictive on the outlook side uh, of the equation, as we've seen uh, the appetite for tightening ease back in those Fed funds futures expectations. And here, you could have a bit of uh, an interesting dichotomy. If the dollar is rising, that's of course negative for gold as a standby alternative to fiat, to paper currency. Uh, but on the other side, if there is risk aversion, then you would expect safety-seeking uh, capital flows to favor not just the, uh, the greenback, but also treasury bonds. If those go up, and we saw a, a very... Uh, interesting bond auction uh, today that had uh, a sign of strong demand, very um, robust demand. Um, if that's the case and bonds go up, then yields come down. 
and yields coming down is actually gold supportive because gold doesn't yield anything. So in relative terms, weaker yields usually are a reason for gold to edge up. Between the dollar going up and yields coming down, gold might find itself between a rock and a hard place and get anchored. But because it has been rallying so uh, prodigiously in recent months, there may be a, a, an adjustment lower there just to sort of reset the narrative. But the, the big moves in the event of this kind of pivot, which again may be unlocked, or at least may get the first step in being unlocked in an as expected GDP number that then sets the stage for the next narrative for speculation to follow, that seems like it might be uh, most impactful for stock markets and by extension, the greenback. That is macro money for today. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. I'll be back tomorrow to talk through the second bit of key U.S. data this week, the PCE inflation gauge. Uh, in the meantime, good luck out there. Take care. The content of this podcast is provided solely by Tasty Trade Inc. and are not the direct views or opinions of any of its affiliate companies. This content is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not, nor is it intended to be, a research report, trading or investment advice, or a recommendation that any investment strategy, security, or futures product is suitable for any person. You are responsible for making your own investment decisions in light of your individual investment knowledge, objectives, and financial situation. Applicable supporting documentation for any claims, including claims made on behalf of options programs, comparison, recommendations, statistics, or other technical data will be supplied upon request. Tasty Trade Inc. is not a licensed financial advisor, registered investment advisor, or registered broker-dealer.